Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of September 23rd, 2018. The podcast that... Pop culture reference, not sound... This is your host, Shane Killian. First, a quick announcement. Next weekend is the fifth weekend in the month, and for the sake of new listeners, we always take the weekend off when it's a fifth Saturday or Sunday, so the next podcast will be in two weeks. Now let's OCR the news of the bogus. And big surprise when the MEPs of the EU voted on their new free speech hating copyright law. As we covered, they did so without even reading it. And guess what? Not even the man who was the driving force behind the new law was aware of what he was voting for. MEP Emmanuel Carlson was asked about one part of the law that barred the filming of sports events. He replied, quote, This was a kind of mistake, I think, by the jury committee. Someone amended this. No one had been aware of this. So he didn't even read the final law before voting on it. He cited time pressure is the reason why... But considering that these and many other problems with Articles 11 and 13 have been pointed out very publicly by tech giants and many others, including the loss of basic safe harbor protections for websites and the banning of so much as linking to copyrighted news stories, when linking is the entire reason for the web's existence in the first place, this excuse rings hollow. Of those complaints, Carlson said that MEPs were complaining that they were trying to manipulate their votes as if their opinions didn't match those of concerned individuals all over the world. Carlson also said, quote, I was actually flabbergasted by my time in the Parliament. It exceeded my worst fears about the competence of the MEP's handling of this directive. Well, Carlson, maybe that should tell you something about trying to get medieval mercantilist policies passed by a government that's in the back pocket of big content providers, right? Well, one can hope anyway. Of course, even when something's a good idea, like securing our IoT devices, it's obvious it still shouldn't be left to government, least of all the government of California. The state legislature just approved SB 327 Information Privacy Connected Devices, which now goes to Governor Jerry Brown for his signature. The bill would require manufacturers, quote, to equip the device with a reasonable security feature or features that are appropriate to the nature and function of the device, appropriate to the information it may collect, contain, or transmit, and designed to protect the device and any information contained therein from unauthorized access, destruction, use, modification, or disclosure as specified. If you're wondering what that means, well, pretty much it means absolutely nothing. But... The bill also makes some specific requirements, including forcing the user to change the default password, add unspecified security features, but which appear to mean things like firewalls and antiviruses, and of course they must not limit law enforcement agencies from getting information on the device with a court order, while at the same time securing it from an authorized access. Yeah, like that's doable. But the whole thing shows a basic misunderstanding of how these devices should be secured, as Robert Graham of Verata Security explains, quote, It's based on the misconception of adding security features. It's like dieting where people insist you should eat more kale, which does little to address the problem that you're picking out on potato chips. The key to dieting is not eating more, but eating less. The same is true of cybersecurity, where the point is not to add security features, but to remove insecure features. 
For IoT devices, that means removing listening ports and cross-site injection issues in web management. Adding features is typical magic pill or silver bullet thinking that we spend much of our time in InfoSec fighting against. We don't want arbitrary features like firewall and antivirus added to these products. It'll just increase the attack surface, making things worse. The bill does target one insecure feature that should be removed, hard-coded passwords, but they get the language wrong. A device doesn't have a single password, but many things that may or may not be called passwords. A typical IoT device has one system for creating accounts on the web management interface, a wholly separate authentication system for services like Telnet, and yet a wholly separate system for things like debugging interfaces. This law is backwards-looking rather than forward-looking. Forward-looking, by far the most important thing that will protect IoT in the future, is isolation mode on the Wi-Fi access point that prevents devices from talking to each other or infecting each other. This prevents cross-site attacks in the home. It prevents infected laptops and desktops, which are much more under threat than IoT, from spreading to IoT. But lawmakers don't think in terms of what will lead to the most protection. They think in terms of who can be blamed. Blaming IoT devices for moral weakness of not doing reasonable things is satisfying, regardless if it's effective. As for the vague language I mentioned earlier, quote, It's impossible for any company to know what these words mean. Impossible to know if they are compliant with the law. Like other laws that use these terms, it'll have to be worked out in the courts. But security is not like other things. Rather than something static that can be worked out once, it's always changing. This is especially true since the adversary isn't something static like wear and tear on car parts, but dynamic. As defenders improve security, attackers change tactics, so what's reasonable is constantly changing. The issue is going to constantly be before the courts as attackers change tactics, causing enormous costs. It's going to saddle IoT devices with encryption and antivirus features that the public believe are reasonable, but that make security worse. He concludes, quote, the law wholly misses the point. A law demanding IoT companies have disclosure programs would actually be far more effective at improving security than this current law, while not imposing the punitive costs the current law does. Here's a topic we haven't covered because I thought this was just a short-term fad and if I ignored it, it would just go away, but it's not. A while back, the internet mega-troll site 4chan decided to prank people on the left by claiming that the OK sign was secretly a symbol used by white supremacists. We saw it recently when Brett Kavanaugh's former law clerk Zena Bash supposedly flashed the sign, and the news media went completely ape over it. They've just done it again with, get this, the Coast Guard. This time, it was apparently NBC News that was at the forefront of the manufacturversy. Their crack team of investigative journalists uncovered this secret sign by performing an intensive investigation of people's Twitter posts. Yes, when the leftists pee their pants on Twitter, the mainstream media is there to give it undeserved credibility. It happened as the Coast Guard was broadcasting information about Hurricane Florence when an unidentified man in the background displayed the unmistakable symbol of racism and white supremacy, or was scratching his ear one. The hilarious thing is, NBC apparently knows that this was all started by trolls, but wants to make it legit anyway. They wrote, while the gesture appears innocuous, 
and may have started as an online troll campaign, it has seemingly become a symbol used by alt-right supporters to trigger liberals with the implicit suggestion that white nationalist views have become more prominent. Well, maybe they wouldn't be triggering leftist morons if leftist morons didn't keep being triggered, you think? The Coast Guard has removed the man, whatever that means. But don't take my word for all this, people. The Anti-Defamation League has been seeing racism in so many places they've almost lost as much credibility as the Southern Poverty Law Center, but even they have their limits. They've confirmed that the OK symbol for white power is a hoax. Quote, The OK hand gesture originated as one of these hoaxes in February 2017 when an anonymous 4chan announced Operation OKKK, telling other members that we must flood Twitter and other social media websites claiming that the OK hand sign is a symbol of white supremacy. The user even provided a helpful graphic showing how the letters WP for white power could be traced within an OK gesture. Some people have taken the white power graphic created by 4chan and spread it around as coming from the ACLU, something the ACLU vociferously denies, and they too confirm that the OK symbol has nothing to do with white supremacy. The NRB is a volunteer agency devoted to information dissemination and protections of privacy and anonymity. They tweeted, The NRB agency confirmed that this hand gesture is not related to white power. It is the universally recognized symbol for OK, included as indicating the word perfect in both British and American sign language. So if you want another reason why so many of us consider the mainstream media to be fake news, here you go. And now it's time to fart in the general direction of this week's biggest bogan emitter. And it's another fake news outlet this week as it goes to the Washington Post, who blamed Hurricane Florence on, get this, Donald Trump. Jeez, is he responsible for global warming too? Oh, wait, that's exactly their argument. They wrote, When it comes to extreme weather, Mr. Trump is complicit. He plays down humans' role in increasing the risks, and he continues to dismantle efforts to address those risks. It is hard to attribute any single weather event to climate change, but there is no reasonable doubt that humans are priming the Earth's systems to produce disasters. Oh yeah, there is! According to data from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the likelihood is that global warming will result in fewer hurricanes, not more. In fact, I'm including in the show notes a resignation letter from climate scientist Chris Lancey, who resigned over this issue when the IPCC retained a scientist as a lead author who was going against the science on precisely this issue. Quote, I found it a bit perplexing that the participants in the Harvard press conference had come to the conclusion that global warming was impacting hurricane activity today. To my knowledge, none of the participants in that press conference had performed any research on hurricane variability nor were they reporting on any new work in the field. All previous and current research in the area of hurricane variability has shown no reliable long-term trend up in the frequency or intensity of tropical cyclones, either in the Atlantic or any other basin. The evidence is quite strong and supported by the most recent credible studies that any impact in the future from global warming upon hurricanes will likely be quite small. The latest results suggest that by around 2080, hurricanes may have winds and rainfall about 5% more intense than today. 
It has been proposed that even this tiny change may be an exaggeration as to what may happen by the end of the 21st century. It is beyond me why my colleagues would utilize the media to push an unsupported agenda that recent hurricane activity has been due to global warming. Indeed, the last 15 years or so have supposed to have been the peak of the hurricane cycle, yet they've been fewer in number and lesser in force than normal. So what does this have to do with Trump? The Washington Post writes, The Trump administration announced Tuesday a plan to roll back federal rules on methane, a potent greenhouse gas that is the main component in natural gas. What they don't seem to realize is that the way you use natural gas is by burning methane. It's not going into the atmosphere because you burn it up first. As regular listeners know, I am not in any way a climate change denier, although I am skeptical of the more apocalyptic side of the issue. So let's grant them every single point about global warming and assume it's all true. Here's the problem. When people don't have natural gas to use, what do they turn to? It's not solar and wind, they go to coal and oil. When Trump withdrew the U.S. from the Paris Climate Accord, leftists said the worst was going to happen, but I'm including a link to a report showing that since then, the U.S. has actually achieved the largest decline in carbon emissions in the world. And the reason for it is mostly attributable to using natural gas to replace coal and oil. Let me explain the science a bit. We're talking about hydrocarbons here. Hydrocarbons basically have hydrogen and carbon, obviously. Methane is CH4. That's one carbon atom and four hydrogen atoms. It burns when you mix it with oxygen, which is O2, and apply heat. They do a little dance, the CH4 is broken apart, and the C connects with an O2 to make CO2, carbon dioxide. With the H4, you have two H2s, and an O2 is broken apart into O's, so that gives you two H2O molecules. Basically, for every molecule of methane you burn, you get one molecule of carbon dioxide and two of water vapor. So you're not putting that much CO2 in the atmosphere for each unit of energy you get. It's basically one-third. But look at coal and oil. The numbers vary. There are a bunch of different molecules here, but it's basically C a lot, H a lot, and some other stuff in there too. But there are a lot more carbon atoms than hydrogen. Each carbon atom will make one molecule of carbon dioxide, but you need two hydrogen atoms to make one molecule of water. So this is much worse as far as CO2 emissions are concerned. You're putting far more carbon into the atmosphere per unit of energy you burn than you are with methane. If you're concerned about global warming, you should like natural gas. It's always sickening to see the press exploit a tragedy in this way to push an agenda and blame a political opponent. But while they're posturing about being on the side of science and the environment, they're actually going against it. So all of that makes the Washington Post this week's biggest bogan emitter. And now let's autocorrect this week's Idiot Extraordinary. And this week, it goes to the state of Georgia for the latest in their voting machine security saga. In April, we covered Robert Graham's letter to the Georgia governor urging him to veto a bill that would have made it illegal for independent analysts to do security testing of voting machines. And, of course, we've also covered how terrible these machines are when they are analyzed. 
Now, Georgia is whining that going back to good old secure paper ballots would be too hard. This after a group of activists went to court to try and get paper ballots reinstated. Georgia is just one of five states in the U.S. to use purely digital voting with no paper record. Georgia claims that making this change would be, in their word, reckless. They also complained that it would be expensive, unwieldy, and not worth it. They said in a filing, quote, A theoretical possibility that a voting machine somewhere might be susceptible to tampering is outweighed by the state's legitimate interest in protecting its elections from the mad scramble that would certainly ensue if the plaintiff's motions were granted. The thing is, all hacking is theoretical until it actually happens. It's only theoretical that the horses might leave the barn if the doors open, so closing it now is premature. They're making a big deal of the timing, saying that there just isn't enough time before the election to make the change. But this lawsuit was filed in 2017, with the delays being the fault of the state. And besides, this is at best an argument for making the changes for the 2020 election, not for not making the changes at all. The problem with these voting machines are, these companies keep their software a proprietary trade secret. Election officials don't even have access to it, and there's no way to tell whether or not the software in a voting machine has been tampered with. There's no public testing unless you count things like DEFCON, and there's no paper trail nor any other way of inspecting the results to verify that they're accurate. It's interesting when you compare this to Vegas. If you have a slot machine, then the Nevada Gaming Commission has access to all software, and it's illegal to use any that isn't on file. They do surprise inspections to make sure the software installed matches the ones on their chips. The machines are certified by an independent agency with public review, and they all have to keep paper records subject for review at any time. What does it say when we protect people from gambling fraud better than we protect them from voter fraud? So all of that makes the state of Georgia this week's... Idiot Well, that wraps up this didn't-feel-too-good-about-it edition of Bogosity Podcast. Come join the discussion at forum.bogosity.tv or discord.bogosity.tv and feel free to send a question, statement, news article, or rant in text or audio to podcast at bogosity.tv. This podcast depends on you to keep going, so please donate to Shane DK on PayPal, or if you want to use crypto, you can donate at altcoins.bogosity.tv. You can also support Shane DK on Patreon to get the podcast and my YouTube videos early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from L. Neil Smith. Tell me what you think, not what you think other people think. If you voted in terms of what you're ready for, rather than what you've convinced yourself others are ready for, we'd have had a constitutional government, a libertarian society, and eradicated socialism half a century ago. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution, not commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 international license. Bogosity. <laughs>